The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Thank you very much. I, I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity. Uh, Harvey Kahn, in his uh, recent book on evangelism, uh, warns of the peril of tonight's assignment of considering a theology for evangelism because one of the more burdensome ways of avoiding evangelism is to escape to the study and write about it. And of course you can uh, compound that default by lecturing on the theology of evangelism because uh, substantial lectures on the subject can obviously equip another crop of students to debate the issues, to write committee reports, to advance ecumenical dialogue, and to to discover all sorts of other fascinating substitutes uh, for doing the work of an evangelist. Now, Harvey, in his uh, book, says that um, we have a charge uh, to go to the streets, and at the end of the first chapter, he says, please go not to the study, but to the streets. And, of course, he writes that in a book. Uh, But um, I I suppose um, it's a book with an engaging enough style that you can read it in the street all right. Now, I understand that uh, in this series of lectures that you've been having, uh, the uh, teachers have uh, used the blackboard to coach you as theologians in the practice of evangelism. And tonight, in the last of this series, we're going to think about the theology of evangelism. But of course, we need not be uh, substituting uh, reflection for active service when we think about a theology of evangelism. Sound doctrine is, after all, uh, essential for evangelism. We must have a grasp of the gospel that we proclaim And it must be that gospel that moves us to pray to the Lord of the harvest, to thrust out laborers into his harvest. So to deepen our understanding of evangelism, we need to deepen our understanding of the gospel, of the evangel. And it is the gospel of the kingdom that must be proclaimed in all the world. Now, of course, dispensational theology has removed the gospel of the kingdom from the present age. And in theory, if not always in practice, uh, the dispensationalists put the content of the synoptic gospels uh, on the shelf until the church age is over. The outworking of this uh, misconception has, I think, influenced evangelism in the United States. Now, not as much, perhaps, as you might suppose. Uh, The error has not been as fatal as one might think uh, for a a number of reasons. Uh, First of all, even if you limit your theology to the prison epistles of Paul, uh, you aren't given a different gospel from what you have in uh, the synoptics or in John. And uh, also, 
the dispensationalists have often been happily uh, inconsistent. Uh, the old Schofield Bible uh, told us not to uh, use the Lord's Prayer since it was for the kingdom age, uh, not to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, because that's praying on legal ground and must be avoided. But uh, many churches, many Bible churches in the United States have been in this respect more fundamentalist than dispensational, and uh, the people have continued to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. And uh, to think in those terms, not merely of the future kingdom uh, to come with the Lord's return, but of the progress of the work of Christ in the world today. Now, Reformed theology, on the other hand, has recognized the importance of the kingdom message in the Gospels. And yet, perhaps because of the focus of the Reformation on Pauline theology, uh, the distinctive emphasis of the uh, the gospel accounts, especially the synoptics, has not always been fully appreciated. And with the growth of biblical theology and uh, with the growth of the legacy of Gerhardus Voss and Hermann Ritter Voss and those that have been studied here, uh, I think we can come to see afresh the importance of the kingdom perspective as it relates to evangelism. And really, that's my purpose in the lecture tonight. It's to uh, suggest to you that you give more careful consideration as you think about evangelism uh, to the biblical theology of the kingdom and its implications for our proclamation of the gospel message and for our service of Christ in this world uh, in which he calls us to be his people. Now, I have great respect for the labors of the Westminster faculty in this very area, and particularly for the work of Harvey Kahn and Jack Miller in applying biblical theology to evangelism. So I suppose I'm rather guilty of bringing a scuttle of coal to the anthracite region uh, of Pennsylvania, but uh, I certainly do want to encourage you to keep thinking about the meaning of evangelism as the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. And so first of all, let's note that kingdom evangelism proclaims the Lord. The good news of the kingdom is the announcement that the time is at hand for the fulfillment of the promises of God. The kingdom theme of the gospels is drawn especially from the prophecies of Isaiah and Daniel and from the Psalms. The force of Basileia, as has often been pointed out, is blunted by our word kingdom. The term as we use it suggests a realm, but the term in the Gospels describes the power of the king rather than the territory over which the power is exercised. The kingdom of God expresses his dominion rather than his domain, as you have been taught here, I'm sure. As the Psalms often affirm, God is king over all. He is sovereign in all his ways and all his works. And more specifically, God is king in the midst of his people. He rules in Mount Zion. The promises for the future describe the coming of the Lord the King in glory, in power, and in judgment. He will redeem his people uh, delivering them not only from their enemies, 
but also from their sins. There's that marvelous passage at the end of the prophecy of Micah where God says that not only will all the enemies of his people be subjected to them, but that he will trample their sins underfoot. So there is the triumph of God in redemptive grace. In the glory of his coming and by his power, God will accomplish all that he has planned. The coming of the kingdom, as uh, Herman Ritterboss says, is the self-assertion of God in all of his works. The total sovereignty of God's action in bringing in his kingdom means that the kingdom is not something we prepare for God. The only sense in which we can prepare the way of the Lord is to cry out in repentance and faith. The rending of the heavens by which God will come down to establish his kingdom, the fire of judgment, the framing of the new creation, uh, this is not man's work to perform. Yet the coming of the kingdom is not dreadful news, but good news. Good news because God purposes salvation for his people. The promises of the Old Testament are so great that only the Lord himself can fulfill them. If the kingdom of God is to come, the king must come. The angels announce to the shepherds that the baby in the manger is Christ the Lord. He has come to save his people from their sins. The Gospels, then, all center in Jesus Christ, the King. He is the Lord. God's salvation is found in him. He speaks as no man has spoken, not just because of the wisdom of his words, nor even just because of his revelation of the Father, but because of the way that his words witness to himself. He calls men to leave all and to follow him, he reveals his power by his mighty works, and those works are the very works of the Lord whose path is in the sea and who stills the storm. He gives bread in the wilderness, sight to the blind, and life from the dead. You will, you will recall that when John the Baptist sent his disciples to Jesus with that skeptical question, Art thou he that cometh, or look we for another? That Jesus replied by quoting virtually uh, from Isaiah 35. Uh, referring them to the mighty works that they could witness, uh, works which revealed his fulfillment of those great deeds of salvation that the prophet Isaiah ascribes to God himself in the latter days. When he calls his disciples to evangelism, Jesus promises to make them fishers of men, but he does so after he has miraculously filled their nets with fish. Jesus speaks of the day when he will be revealed in the glory of his Father and with the holy angels. But he does not summon legions of angels to the Garden of Gethsemane when the soldiers come to arrest him. The kingdom is present because the king is present. Yet the kingdom is to come because the king is coming. The parousia remains to take place. By his miracles, by his words, Jesus shows himself to be the king. But by the restraint of his ministry, he reveals the program of his kingdom. He did not come to bring judgment, but to bear it. The fire with which he baptized was not the fire of eternal destruction, but the fire of the Spirit. 
he called his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. He promised them tribulation in the world, yet told them that he had overcome the world. In the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the power of the kingdom is seen to be the power of God, that is, uh, the power that is not of men. Christ is Lord, not in spite of his sufferings and death, but in the triumph of his passion. His cross bore his royal title, and Jesus died as king. In him God triumphed over the principalities and the powers. When Jesus cried, It is finished, he had accomplished the redemption of all those that were given to him of the Father. The authority at the right hand of God that Jesus exercises as the God-man is authority grounded in his victory on Calvary. His power as the king and priest of glory guarantees the fulfillment of the purpose of his saving death and of the restoration, ultimately, of all things. Kingdom evangelism glorifies the Father in his Son, our Lord. It is lordship evangelism. Jesus Christ is held forth as Lord, Lord on the cross, Lord on the throne. Evangelism calls men and women to become disciples of the Jesus of the Gospels. We are given the testimony of the Spirit to Jesus in the New Testament so that we might know him and trust him. We dare not invent new Christs of the Indian road or reprogram Jesus for the computer age. Our hope lies in the real Jesus, the Jesus of history and of faith. It is impossible to abstract from Jesus his role as Savior and to claim his work in that capacity while withholding the total commitment to his lordship that he requires of those who would follow him. It is the Lord whom we meet in the Gospels, the very Lord of glory. We cannot negotiate with him. We cannot admit him to our lives on our own terms nor invite him to round out the religious dimension of a full life. How fearful is the temptation to view the Gospels as offering us resources from which we may draw material to construct the figure of Jesus for our purposes, however devout or sophisticated those purposes may seem to be. Evangelism worships the Lord and hears his word, and it dare not package Jesus. Now, kingdom evangelism will shrink back from other techniques of accommodating Christ's lordship to our control. Strangely, this accommodation is sometimes done in the name of that very lordship. Uh, Jacques Ellul has pointed out that the affirmation of Christ's lordship over history is sometimes used to justify a sacralization of history. The progress that is so idealized in the older liberalism was identified with the rule of Christ. In another way, liberation theology claims to read off God's purposes from history. What is the Lord doing in the world today? Uh, during his earthly ministry, Christ refused to allow his disciples to use the sword to establish his rule. He specifically refused to lead them in revolt against Rome. 
But with the progress of history, some would say, the Lord's agenda can be seen to have changed. Revolution is now his work of salvation, the way in which he delivers the poor from their oppressors. Now, it is true that Christ, as the Lord of history, does govern all things to the accomplishment of his plan. His present judgments do anticipate the final judgment of his power. From the throne of glory, he executes his sentence upon the blasphemy of a boastful Herod, as it's recorded in the 12th chapter of Acts, or of a lying Ananias or Sapphira in Acts 5. But Christ does not call upon his people to become his avenging angels. Peter may not draw the sword against Herod or Ananias. It is one thing to recognize the Lord's judgments in history. It is quite another to conclude that we are now called to implement those judgments. Indeed, because the Lord withholds his full judgment till he comes, his providential rule of all things is still mysterious to us. As Christ opens the seven seals of the book of God's decrees, we cannot claim to understand all the pattern of his judgments. In ecumenical theology, the lordship of Christ has been used to create a worldly doctrine in yet another way. The universalism of the atonement has long been assumed in reports prepared for the ecumenical movement. Since Christ died for every individual, and since his death was savingly effective, all men are saved. It is the world, therefore, that is in Christ. The church differs from the world only in possessing the knowledge of the world's salvation. Uh, based on this reasoning, openness to the world has been advocated, a worldly theology that calls the church to identify with the world and to deal with the world's agenda. Now, all such theories have the effect of making the kingdom of Christ a kingdom of this world. The separation wrought by the gospel of the kingdom is denied. Jesus said not to the world, but to his disciples, fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. The lordship of uh, God over the world in which we live is a lordship that is manifested in the focus of the kingdom as well as in the breadth of the kingdom. Uh, God as Lord of all controls all things. Jesus Christ as ruling in the name of God and as the Son of God controls all things. But there is a focus in the sovereignty of the Lord in salvation. You will remember that Paul in his doxology in Romans 11:36 writes, for of him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. Amen. And you will remember that that statement has in view particularly not God's rule over all things in general, but God's rule and sovereignty in the great work of salvation, because that has been the subject of Paul's discussion in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Of him, through him, 
to him are all things in salvation. So there is a focus in the sovereignty of God that is found in the kingdom work of salvation. God's kingdom, then, is revealed in Christ's lordship, in the lordship of the one who is uh, the, the Son of God, who does the works of the Father, who speaks the word in the Father's name, but also in his own name, and who reveals his lordship in suffering, who takes the title Son of Man from the prophecy of Daniel, describing his glory coming on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days, and uses that title Son of Man to describe his work of suffering. His lordship, uh, then, not only in spite of suffering, but his lordship in and through suffering, as the Son of Man is exalted. The one who is the Lord of the suffering church. He is the Lord now because the kingdom is present in him. He was the Lord in his earthly ministry. He will be the Lord when he comes again. And the kingdom is present because Jesus Christ is now Lord and rules over all things by the power of his spirit among us. The kingdom is future because Jesus Christ will come again in the parousia and bring with him the fulfillment of all the promises of the kingdom. Christ then reveals his lordship as divine. He reveals his lordship in suffering, and it is Christ's lordship that we are to proclaim in the Gospels, proclaiming him not in our package, but proclaiming him in the Gospel package, proclaiming him as he is declared to us in the inspired word of God. It was at the uh, meeting of the World Council of Churches at New Delhi in 1961 that Joseph Sittler of the uh, Divinity School of the University of Chicago uh, created quite a sensation by a strong address that he gave, calling the uh, delegates to embrace a cosmic Christology. Uh, he claimed that to think of Christ in soteriological terms uh, was far too narrow, that we had to expand our horizons and see Christ in relation to the world of nature, uh, to see Christ as Lord in the universe, and that appeal, which might seem to be very strong, which might seem to emphasize the very things we would want to conserve, that Jesus Christ is Lord of all, uh, that uh, appeal really had an opposite force, because the thrust of it was to call for a worldly theology. The thrust of it was to urge uh, that we should think of uh, the Lordship of Christ uh, more in terms of the problems of the contemporary world in which Christ's rule had to be wrought out in the face of the difficulties of modern life, that the focus then should be changed from soteriology, uh, really, uh, to a kind of sacred sociology or a sacred politics in which we discover uh, the will of Christ uh, in the solutions that we would propose for the modern world. Uh, Jesus is the Lord of the Gospels, uh, not uh, the Lord of our packages. And he is the Lord of the world in his present rule of glory. He is Lord of nature. He is Lord of history. 
but he rules over all things for the accomplishment of those saving purposes uh, for which he came into the world. He is the Lord of the world in his present glory, and he is the Lord of the world in his judgment when he comes again. Uh, you will notice how Paul, in his address uh, to the council on Mars Hill, you will notice how Paul preaches a kingdom evangelism. Uh, you will notice that he asserts the rule and the sovereignty of God as over against all the idols. And then, as he drives home his message, he presents Jesus Christ as the one who is appointed as judge of all, and that his appointment is seen by the resurrection from the dead. Now, of course, the resurrection immediately became a stumbling block to his Greek hearers. But notice the way in which Paul built the thrust of his message to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and as judge, the one who would judge men for idolatry, the one who would manifest to men the call of the lordship of God upon them. And Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the world, is also the Lord of the church. We must make the careful distinction between the providential rule of Jesus Christ and the saving rule of Jesus Christ. So that when Jesus says, fear not, little flock, it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He is referring there to the kingdom as the kingdom of salvation and blessing that is God's gift to those who come to him through Jesus Christ, to those who are part of that little flock of Christ. This is a total authority that Jesus has. There is a, a holistic evangelism in a strong sense. All of life is redeemed by Jesus Christ. We who are brought into a saving relation to him are brought to him as full people. And the doctrine of the resurrection assures us that the lordship and saving power of Jesus Christ applies to our bodies as well as to our souls. We are to be the people of God in a new heavens and a new earth, and the wholeness of our own renewed and redeemed persons uh, comes to its full expression through the saving work of Jesus. This total authority is, of course, centered in Jesus Christ himself. And we proclaim him as the king, as the one who is Lord and to whom men must cry out in repentance for their sin and upon whom they must cast themselves for redemption. Well, God's kingdom must be proclaimed by proclaiming God as Lord. Uh, God's kingdom in terms of his sovereignty, God's kingdom in terms of Christ's lordship, and God's kingdom too in celebration and anticipation. Evangelism is doxological. Evangelism is to the praise of God. Uh, evangelism is not uh, apologetic in uh, the non-technical sense of that word. Evangelism does not mean that we have found ourselves somehow cornered and in an embarrassed way uh, we confess, uh, well, yes, uh, I might as well tell you uh, I am a Christian. Uh, the approach uh, to evangelism in the Bible is the approach of rejoicing, of exalting 
in the wonder of what God has done. Uh, think of uh, the way in which it is described in the first uh, epistle of Peter. Uh, you will uh, recall that there uh, Peter writes in the second chapter, verse 9, but ye are an elect race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may show forth the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who in time past were no people, but now are the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You see, we are called out of darkness. We are made to be the people of God in order that we might show forth God's excellencies. And uh, the term used here is used in the Septuagint to translate the word uh, that really says to enumerate, to count, to number, uh, to show forth those excellencies, those wonders of God's attributes that are made manifest in the plan of redemption that he has wrought. Now, of course, uh, that could be said in a, I suppose, in a uh, somewhat uh, um, superficial way. Uh, everybody has a plan of evangelism these days. Uh, everybody has a method of evangelism. And uh, uh, you've heard from some uh, methods, I presume. Uh, I trust some very good methods. Uh, so, uh, obviously, we could come up with one more method tonight. We could say, well, kingdom evangelism praises God, rejoices in his sovereignty, rejoices in his lordship, and so it's doxological evangelism. It's the evangelism of praise. It's a singing evangelism. And uh, so, obviously, if you want to start an interview of personal witness with somebody, you hum a hymn, and uh, that gets you started in the right tune, and uh, you can carry on from there, those of you at least who can carry tunes. And it would be uh, a way, well, I can think of worse ways of uh, approaching uh, the subject. That's maybe not a bad idea. But you see, it isn't, of course, just a technique. Uh, it is uh, a basic approach that we come with the gospel message in a world in which Jesus Christ is Lord and King, in a world in which his kingdom is already present by the power of the Holy Spirit, and in a world in which Jesus Christ will come again in the parousia and will judge all things. And in a situation like that, where we have a gospel that is good news, good news precisely because of the power of God in the kingdom and the power of God to redeem in the kingdom, if this is our message and this is our situation, then uh, evangelism ought to be done with joy. It ought to be done with gladness. There ought to be a note of singing in the way in which we show forth the glories of God who has called us out of darkness uh, into his marvelous light. So that if once we capture uh, this insight as to the depth of the theology of evangelism, uh, when once we begin to pray to the Lord our God, praising him for his great work of redemption in the world, when once we begin to approach the matter in that way, then our evangelism uh, will not be defensive in, in the bad sense. It won't be uh, that we feel uh, so threatened uh, that we're unable to evangelize and lack the boldness, nor will it be that our evangelism will become somehow manipulation or cajoling people or trying to uh, uh, entice them, as 
it were, into the kingdom uh, by various uh, uh, goodies uh, of the wonderful things that uh, can happen to uh, their lives uh, if they will just now uh, sign uh, the uh, card or pray the prayer with you. It becomes rather a focus on God himself in which we see that God is to be glorified, God is to be praised, and in the praises of God, uh, we uh, summon men to come and to receive the blessings that God spreads before us in the banquet table of his love. So we celebrate the accomplishment of redemption, and we rejoice in our separation from sin and death by the power of Christ, that we sing in kingdom joy as over against the sadness uh, of rebellion. And there is also an expectancy in kingdom evangelism. That is, we are claiming Christ's victory over the world. We know that it's a reality, and we are claiming the fullness of it, claiming it not only in our prayers, but claiming it in our lifestyles, claiming it by recognizing that we belong to the Lord of glory, we are expectant because we know that Christ's great predictions of the end are going to be brought about by the preaching of the gospel. It's as the gospel is preached to all the world that the end comes. And so Jesus Christ is giving to us a work to do in connection with his promises of the end as we expectantly await the realization of his promises. Such evangelism of celebration and anticipation is also holy spiritual evangelism. Uh, James Dunn has well pointed out the close connection that we find in the Gospels between the Holy Spirit and the kingdom. Uh, Jesus uh, speaks of the coming of the Spirit. He speaks of the promise of the Father. Uh, the disciples are to wait in Jerusalem for the fulfillment of that promise, as, he, uh, as Luke tells us in uh, the beginning of the book of Acts. And Jesus' ministry looks forward to the fulfillment and to the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the coming of the Spirit represents uh, the inrush of that power of the kingdom by which the sovereignty of God will accomplish his saving work. The Spirit is the promise of the Father. The Spirit is the presence of Jesus. And the Spirit, then, is the, is the person of the Trinity who fulfills the evangelistic task as he possesses and directs the life and work of the church. So the book of Acts is uh, not only the continuation of the work of Jesus Christ presented in the gospel, but the book of Acts is filled with the work of the Holy Spirit. It is the record of the work of the Holy Spirit in evangelism as he uses the church. And by that very same token, it is a record of the spread and growth of the word. Uh, in the book of Acts, uh, the phrase, the, the word of God increased, uh, becomes a marker in the book of the development of the stages of the spread of the gospel. The word of God increases, and this is the power of the Holy Spirit that brings about the realization uh, of the gospel. It is the power of the gospel of the kingdom, the word of the king, the word of his saving and ruling authority uh, that is made evident in the spread of the church. 
Kingdom evangelism, then, is entirely evangelism that proclaims the Lord and focuses on him, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Kingdom evangelism is also end-time evangelism. Uh, the kingdom is present and future, as we have seen. The definitive kingdom to come is the kingdom of glory. The justice of God will be revealed when his kingdom comes. Uh, it, Christ will be uh, the judge of that last day, and he will judge the secrets of men's hearts. Justice delayed is not justice denied when it is the justice of God. And in the rage for justice, men who do not recognize the sovereignty of God uh, are filled with utter frustration because it seems so often true uh, that the wicked prosper and the poor and the righteous are oppressed and destroyed. But the word of the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom is that God is absolutely just that all sin will be requited, that we are all held accountable to God, and that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There is no wicked person who will not receive the due reward of his deeds, according to Scripture. And the only escape for any sinner is the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. Now, I sometimes feel that although we as Christians do recognize that we must be advocates of justice, that there are times when we lose sight of the reality of that final justice, of that full and total judgment that God will bring in the last day. But this is a very essential part of the gospel of the kingdom, that God is judge, that men are accountable to him, that they must stand before him with regard to all the deeds done in the body. The justice of the kingdom is revealed, and the renovation of the kingdom is consummated. Uh, Peter, in the third chapter of Acts, in his address, uh, speaks about the times of the restitution of all things, or the restoration of all things. Uh, the kingdom message is that Jesus has come, but that he's been received to heaven for a time. And when that time comes of the restoration of all things, as Peter preaches, then Jesus Christ will come again. And with the coming of the Lord, there comes a new heavens and a new earth, a consummation fulfillment of everything that God has made. And so you see, the message of the kingdom includes both sides of the picture, a justice that purges away all sin and all injustice in the world and in the hearts of men, and then a new creation, a new heavens, a renovation in which there will be a new heavens and a new earth in which there dwells righteousness. So the kingdom to come is the definitive kingdom. And that kingdom to come already has a presence among us because the power of God that brings in the final kingdom is already present in the rule of God uh, through his spirit uh, in the world today. Now, of course, this has great meaning against all uh, humanistic utopias. Uh, God's kingdom is not man's kingdom. The earthly kingdoms are pictured in the book of Daniel as beasts coming out of the sea. And Babylon must be judged. 
and Babylon must receive the cup of the wrath of God uh, against uh, the sin of the city of man. We therefore must be warned against a sacralizing of Babylon, a, a confusion between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God and of his Christ. The vision of Daniel still applies. The kingdoms of the earth rise one after another, but there is only one kingdom, and that kingdom differs from all the others, one kingdom that remains, and that is the kingdom of the stone cut without hands, not a kingdom of man's making, but of God's making, that becomes a great mountain that fills the whole earth. We must, therefore, be very careful about identifying the secular regimes of this world or the secular crusades of this world, of supposing that somehow um, uh, we have a war that will end all war, or that we have a movement that will bring in a classless society, that we can identify the gospel itself as Christ's kingdom with some form of party politics. Uh, Jacques Ellul, in his book, The False Presence of the Kingdom, uh, uh, warns, sometimes to be sure in a rather strident way and uh, always with uh, a Bardian dialectic solution that uh, is uh, uh, not the right answer. But nevertheless, he warns, I think, uh, very forcibly against the danger uh, that is to be found here. Uh, he does uh, mention one matter that I thought was uh, quite notable, that it's often uh, said, you know, that the Byzantine uh, theologians uh, were debating uh, theological hair-splitting uh, while the Turks surrounded the city of Constantinople. And Elul responds, uh, they were discussing the doctrine of the Trinity. And he says, what in the final analysis is the really important thing for the whole of mankind? that Jesus is indeed the Christ or that the Turks defeated the Byzantine Empire in the early 15th century. Uh, what, you see, is the real issue? That which concerns the kingdom of God, the deity of Christ, the message of the kingdom, or a political event, even though it was of major importance for the politics and the uh, tensions of the day. No, the kingdom of God is a spiritual kingdom. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 6. Our warfare is a spiritual warfare. The weapons of our warfare are spiritual. And, of course, that means holy spiritual. And the Apostle Paul doesn't say because they're spiritual, they're therefore of very limited effectiveness. He doesn't say... Uh, in our warfare, we are handicapped by having only ethereal weapons. Uh, he says, to the contrary, the, war, the weapons of our warfare are mighty before God to the casting down of every high imagination that's exalted against Christ. You see, precisely because our warfare is a spiritual warfare, it can confront the ultimate enemy. The principalities and the powers, not in the sense uh, in which they have been demythologized by so much of modern theology, but the principalities and the powers in the real sense, the power of Satan and of his hosts. 
And we can fight against such enemies only with the weapons that God provides, only with the shield of faith, only with the helmet of salvation, only with the sword of the Spirit of God. It is a warfare that is real. It is the ultimate warfare. It is the decisive warfare. But it is a spiritual warfare in which we fight against Satan himself. The message of the kingdom is a message of the triumph of justice, of love, and of liberty. It is addressed to the needy, to the poor, to the oppressed, to those who know themselves to be paupers before God, to those who have no strength, to those who cannot deliver themselves. But the deliverance that we proclaim is the deliverance of God himself and of the power of God who can redeem his people. And in this message, there is tremendous urgency. The Lord tells us to watch. He tells us that it is later than we think. Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane wanted his disciples to watch, not first to watch with him and to support him, but to watch for themselves, lest they be overtaken uh, in temptation. And the disciples slept when they should have watched, and then they fled uh, when the soldiers came to address Jesus. And we, in our complacency, forgetting the reality of the Lord's return, uh, can find ourselves also to be lacking in watching, to hear the mocker say, everything's the same, where is the promise of his coming? And to forget that uh, a day with the Lord, or a thousand years are as a day with the Lord, and that Jesus Christ has not forgotten his promise, and that his warning still applies to watch and to be sober, and to serve with girded loins as those who are waiting for the return of the Lord. You see, if we're to preach kingdom evangelism, we must preach the second coming. If we're to preach kingdom evangelism, we must preach the, the judgment that men face, really face, when God the, the, the Son comes again in the glory of heaven. And we have a stewardship that has to be fulfilled in the sobriety of a watchful spirit. Well then, let me also say that kingdom evangelism is church evangelism. Evangelism is the kingdom mission of the church. The church is the diaspora of the kingdom. Uh, the apostle Peter, in addressing his epistle, uh, writes to Gentiles scattered through Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and he writes to them, calling them the diaspora. Uh, he writes to them by the description that would be applied to the Jews scattered through the world. It must have been a surprise to some of those Gentiles to find themselves called pilgrims and aliens. <laughs> they were living in the same home where they had been brought up and where probably their parents had been brought up. To be sure, some of the population of Galatia had come in uh, from another part of the world. That's why they were called Galatians. But that had happened a long time ago that people had come in from Gaul. And now the apostle writes to them as strangers. Why are they suddenly strangers? Why are they suddenly aliens, uh, uh, their residents where they've always lived. Well, now they're aliens and they're strangers because they're Christians. And being made citizens of the heavenly city, they now have a different perspective in their relationship to this world. For here we have no abiding city, but we seek after that which is to come.
They are pilgrims and aliens in the world, and they are dispersed also in witness in the world. The Lord has scattered in the earth those who are his people, scattered to the ends of the earth and scattered to the end of time. And I think it's an important uh, little touch that in the book of Acts, uh, we find that it's when the disciples are scattered by persecution that they go everywhere preaching the gospel. The gospel spreads often through the scattering of the people of God. A dispersed and pilgrim people scattered in the world are those who bear witness in suffering, giving a reason for the hope that is in them, as Peter says in 1 Peter 3.15. The church, then, is the diaspora of the kingdom because while the church cannot be directly identified with the kingdom, the church is the number of those who are brought into the kingdom by the power of God and who manifest in the world the presence of the kingdom of God. Of God. And so the church is called to be dispersed, but also to be a community, not only to be scattered, but also to be gathered. And it's part of the gospel of the kingdom that we uh, proclaim the newness of the people of God, of those who are drawn together to be a holy community. And it is part of the evangelistic witness of the church that it must become a model of justice and of righteousness, that the church must be seen as bearing the light of God's holiness in the darkness of the world. The world is not holy, but the church is called to be holy. And the church is called to manifest the love of God in the midst of a world of suspicion and hatred and anger. It is the holy community, and it is also the ministering community, because the gospel of the love of God is the great dynamic of ministry to others. It is a diaconal community, because it is called to show forth the love of God. You see, Jesus, when he told the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, showed us uh, what the heart of the gospel requires of us. In that great parable, uh, Jesus showed that the fulfilling of the law is in the realization of the law of love. And what does that law of love mean? And you remember uh, the one who had been questioning Jesus asked, in effect, how many people do I have to love? Making it obvious that he was loving for points. And then Jesus tells the story that turns it all around and says instead, uh, to whom, not to who is my neighbor, but to whom am I a neighbor? That is to say, to whom may I show love? And Jesus has given us the example of the love of God. Uh, the story uh, shows a Jew by the road and uh, two Jews go by who had diaconal responsibility, and neither one of them is willing to do a thing for the man. The Samaritan comes. He has no responsibility. That's the point. Why should a Samaritan do anything for a wounded Jew? Uh, the only uh, service that could be expected might be to uh, administer the coup de grace, you know, to finish the fellow off. Uh, what does the Samaritan do uh, as he comes by? He does everything, everything. Well, then, uh, if uh, he was obliged to do nothing and he did everything, then Jesus says, who was neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? You see, who is your neighbor? 
Well, the one whom you may love, yes. The one whom you're obliged to love? Do you need to keep a, a record of how many people you're supposed to love? No. Uh, who is your neighbor? Why, the one whom you may find to love. That is to say, uh, the one where there is an occasion present that enables you to show to him the love of God. In short, the love that we are to show, the love of the gospel, is the love patterned on God's love. Patterned on the love of God in which he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The Samaritan had compassion. In the New Testament, it is God who has compassion on us. And the word is used almost exclusively of the compassion of God and the compassion of Jesus Christ. The heart of the gospel of the kingdom is the story of the sovereign saving love of God in sending his only begotten son. And we are called to be the people of that love, the people of compassion, the people who know the love of God and therefore who seek to share that love of God uh, to those who are in need about us, need of every sort, physical, spiritual, need of deliverance, need of protection, need in any respect that we can provide for them, we seek to provide it uh, in the name of God himself. The church is the community of the kingdom because it is a holy community and because it is a ministering community and manifests in the world the meaning of that love of God. Kingdom evangelism, then, is first of all theocentric. It centers on God. It is the manifestation of his power and love. It is eschatological. It is end-time evangelism. It is evangelism in view of the coming of the kingdom that is yet to come in the midst of the manifestation of the kingdom that is now present. And it is church evangelism, not in the sense that it is under uh, the control of uh, uh, an institutional hierarchy, but in the sense that the church is called to kingdom evangelism, equipped for kingdom evangelism, uh, given officers with gifts for evangelism, and it is put in the world to manifest that love of God which is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that is given to us. Now, it's true. Kingdom evangelism has transformational power. Kingdom evangelism must be applied in the context of the life in which men live. And it must be applied in the widest context of Christ's rule in all the world and of Christ's word that's given to us. And yes, it is true that the kingdom of God is also a, a penetrating leaven in the world. It is a salt that reaches out as well as the light of witness. Yes, as the evangelist preached, uh, men's lives are changed. Yes, even kingdoms are moved and changed by the power of the gospel of Christ. Yes, there is that transformation that evangelism works. And there is uh, what uh, J.H. Bavin calls the possessio of the gospel, the way in which all the elements in human culture can be transformed and changed by the new context into which they are put when the power of the gospel moves in upon that culture. But we need to recognize in all of our evangelistic work that the power of the gospel lies in the heart of the gospel message itself. That is to say, it lies in the 
proclamation of Jesus Christ as Lord in the work of God, the work of salvation given to us in Jesus Christ. And therefore, it is made manifest as we proclaim that coming kingdom and as we exemplify in the world the meaning of the transformation of the gospel in the community that God has appointed, the community of the church, the community of the fellowship of the people of God who are put in the world in order to be lights, in order to be models, in order to show the justice and the righteousness of God in a community where the saving, redeeming love of God prevails through the power of the Holy Spirit. My friends, as I've talked to you about this, uh, I well recognize how many questions are discussed uh, in the area of evangelism. And I've been reading recently uh, good many of the writings uh, from the World Council on the subject of evangelism and see uh, the confusion that is multiplied by many of those documents. And I realize how many questions there are in this lecture that I haven't answered. And I know you're going to ask me some of them if you have opportunity after this question. But uh, I do have a very deep purpose in choosing this topic and in seeking to uh, deal with it tonight. And the purpose is this, that we begin to recognize afresh how significant it is that we perceive what the New Testament teaches us about the kingdom of God as present and his future, and we begin to proclaim the gospel as those who know the Lord, the King, and recognize the power of that message, the joy of that message, and the efficaciousness of that message, so that we do not seek in the name of relevance or in the name of applicability to present uh, some uh, human uh, hope, some human ideal, uh, whether it be the ideal of progress, whether it be the need in many parts of the world for the overthrow of oppressive governments, whether it be the need of the reconstruction of the economic system, that we do not make any of these things the gospel or the power of the gospel. For Jesus Christ has come. He has preached the gospel of the kingdom. It is revealed to us in the New Testament, and our task is to present it in the context of the modern world, but to present not another gospel or a packaged Jesus, but to present the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.